James, we are now at the last chapter in the, in the, what did they call the afterword or whatever of Sehutlohi's versus Ukrainian war. I can't believe we're at the end of the book. We are pivoting to Asia, aren't we? Because we saw the return of the West, the sanctions coalition, the kind of bully pulpiting that uh, Joe Biden and, and then also Boris Johnson did in terms of rallying the countries. We talked a little bit about the, the peacemakers, those that were ready to sit down and broker a deal and give away some land for quote unquote peace. Then we saw finally them all come together behind Ukraine. That's where the, the, we left off in the book was with that chapter, The Return of the West. The pivot to Asia, is Peter still up here? Peter, where are you when we need you? Because we're going to be talking about China. Robin, that's, that is where we are now. I just got to say, it's been a great book and I liked the last chapter and I liked the, the one that we're going to talk about now the most probably because they didn't depress me at all. No, and they were also the clearest, most easily explained. I remembered the most from those periods, honestly. That's some of the reasons I liked it. But the afterwards, when we get there, I'll tell you how much I like that too. How shall we do this, folks? We read. We take notes, we think about it. We think about the book where it sits in the history of the world and where what it explains to us, but uh, we do not sit down beforehand and hash out what Robin will say and that what I will say. This is off the cuff, I think, Robin, is a fair statement. Pretty much. I, I have some bullet points from what we've read. James probably does too. This chapter I found interesting because we're really, it really was not so much about what's going on in Ukraine. It was about the international international relations and what when it, what was going on around Ukraine. It gives us, I think, a broader perspective to understand how the rest of the world is reacting, which I think is a, it's, it was odd to me when I got to this part of the book because I'm, I wanted to be more in, still in Ukraine with what was going on there. But I think it's very smart here. He's giving us an overview of the competing international, competing spheres of influence is the word he used, the words he uses and on how this all fits together and explain some things that I hadn't, I hadn't been aware of ahead of time. The first part of the chapter, he's, he, he talks about Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, which the Chinese were very upset about. She went to Taiwan and she, to support, to, to express to them America's unwavering commitment to supporting Taiwan's vibrant democracy. That's a quote from Nancy Pelosi. It, it complicated the Jewish confrontation with Russia. And one of the, one of the issues that I hadn't really thought of in all this, so it's true, is the United States was walking a tightrope because we very much did not want to push China and Russia closer together. The last thing we needed was them to be a united front, which has not happened. What was interesting is when Pelosi got there, she was greeted by the Taiwanese with Ukrainian flags. I think, again, as we were talking about with Israel and, and Hamas, I think the Taiwanese understand very clearly that what's going on in Ukraine uh, has a lot to do with what might be going on with China and Taiwan, and that, that Ukraine's victory in this war would spell good things for Taiwan because it would make, it would tell China that, that picking on a weaker, a weaker neighbor is not necessarily going to get them anything positive. At this point, I, he goes on to talk about how after the Cold War, we had the 
peace dividend, as they called it. And we thought everything was fine with, we don't have to worry about Russia anymore because we've got a modus operandi. We own. So we're never going to worry about China. It turns out, obviously, as we see now, that Russia was at least as dangerous. In May 2022, uh, Secretary Blinken very directly said that Russia, Russian President Vladimir Putin poses a clear and present danger with talking about the attack, that the attack on Ukraine is an attack on the principle of sovereignty and territorial integrity and an assault on the foundations of all nations on peace and security, placing it in the international context. James, I'm going to go back over to you. I'm talking too much. No problem, Robin. You're speaking well to the issue. And remember that at this point, the United States was adhering to this idea that the one China idea. Biden did stress that, but then clearly, they is it a turnaround or is it just two conflicting statements that they made? I think it's the latter, two conflicting statements, because then they said, but by God, you're not going to take Taiwan militarily. And in fact, that, that hasn't happened. And clearly, the fate of Russia in this war helped to steer Z away from any such kind of action, because it was clear that Russia was not up to the task, whereas the Western armament was clearly up to the task, even the second grade stuff or, or second class stuff, I guess you could say, that Ukraine was given. Pardon me. However, the United States was also looking at the world through these lenses that saw that uh, China was, in fact, the bigger risk. In the long run, they had the ambition, they had the military. They had somewhat of the intent to change the international order. Their belt, belt and road approach, in short, was that. Would it be like a new superpowers conflict? At the same time, the United States did begin to change its economic policy. And we saw that, right? We saw that with the easy-to-win trade war. Um, but I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. It was just... So anyways, the point of this story about the Chinese is that they really have emerged and pulled away from Russia. They didn't want any part of the Russian war. That was clear. That's a good thing that they didn't, because if they had decided to throw in with the Russians, things might be very different. China has not historically been engaged in big wars the way that Russia has. I'm not going to say it's not in their makeup or not in their ability, but it hadn't been their history. Robin, um, do you want to get down to uh, the next section, Washington's dilemma? Yes, I think so. After that, we'll be returning to some more about the Russia-China look. Um, yeah, Washington's dilemma, it starts out, the main locus of it starts out during the Obama administration, where again, where there was the famous reset with Russia that was, we were supposedly on good terms with Russia. It was a, the Russian question, as in quotes, was settled and it was safe to turn our attention as a country to the threat of China. We signed a new START treaty with Russia and everything looked, looked rosy uh, until not, okay, it's, it started as, let's say it started to cool off after uh, the 2012 elections, parliamentary elections in, in uh, Russia when there were a lot of, of demonstrations in Moscow, mass protests about that, that they felt the election had been stolen. And Hillary Clinton openly, uh, publicly questioned the fairness of the election. 
Putin, of course, in his way of, of finding conspiracies under every rock, became convinced that the it was U.S. interference that had caused all the problems. The, the protests were as a result of the of U.S. interference and all that kind of thing. Okay, as this is going on, when the United States is already feeling a little bit uncomfortable, there was the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Donbass, and sanctions were imposed. That was the end of the reset. Just to go on quickly, just to, to remind people of the highlights of this is recent history. So I'm sure most of us remember it. There was the hacking of the DNC computers. Pelosi says that that Trump was the main beneficiary of Russian interference, which I have to admit is probably true. And certainly, I well, I have to. I let's say it it is clearly true. We can see that regardless of how much direct uh, contact there was, it clearly worked his benefit. I think Putin thought that he would have, have more malleable person with with Trump than he would have with with Hillary. And in point of fact, Trump did treat Putin kid gloves while playing hardball with China. Plochy points out that the Trump administration did actually provide more support to Ukraine than it received under Obama. So it was a mixed bag. Biden comes in and continues to focus on China. Their policy was to have stable and predictable relations with with Russia. And this, as Plokin says, failed in the face of Putin's increasingly aggressive posture. And this, Putin's behavior forces the United States' attention back onto Russia. James. I'm just going to back it up for a second because I so much enjoyed this part when they were um, doing the big reset with Russia. They actually got one of those the, the easy button kind of things. You know oh, that's I mean? embarrassing. I wasn't even going to mention it. I, first, but I not only. Go ahead. <laughs> I love it. It's just so funny that, yeah, they came up with the word and put it on this button. And Clinton gave it to Hillary. Clinton gave it to Lavrov. And it was a mistranslation of the word reset, and it meant it, it it meant overload instead of reset. So they got it wrong. And these, that Clinton asked, "Did did we get? Do you think we got this?" It's no, you got it wrong. It got off to a bad start too. The best part of the whole thing was the start treaty, really, that emerged. Although we'll see where that goes. Anyways, just an amusing thing about the whole process of it reset. Also, to some degree, it shows the naivete, I think, of some of the leadership. If you think about Mr. Clinton back in his day, he mismanaged this in terms of arranging the Budapest Memorandum, which he had to get advice from Mersheimer, of all people, that that was the only thing that really changed his mind about how important Ukraine was. I think, frankly, it is displaying his great power mindset that we're going to set things up here and we'll take care of it. Don't you worry. We'll take care of it. When, in fact, the United States didn't take care of things until very recently. Joe Biden, thank you for that. So it is things move along in this. And what we know is that. Like Robin said, Trump really did help in terms of weapons and things like that more. On the other hand, he never attacked Putin, never said a bad word about him, cozied up to him at the same time. It, it wasn't a good look, and it did apparently work, as we saw if you look at the, the Senate report. On uh, the election interference of 2016, if you read that through, then you'll see that very clearly there was a big 
program that happened. That is not the main thing that we want to get to. That the really the other thing that took our eyes off Russia was just our growing concern. Trump's great concern was with the economic power of China. Like I said before, this is when he started the quote unquote easy to win trade war. It wasn't really a win. I'm not sure it was a draw. I'm not sure what that was, but it didn't get him what I think he was going after. But it did set up this kind of feud with China, which isn't hasn't been all bad in terms of outcomes because we've rebuilt some of our manufacturing capability in the United States as a result of our concern about the amount of control that China has over things like microchips, which we know are just critical in uh, war making these days and just critical for every everyday society to exist. Robin? As you were talking, something just occurred to me. I was thinking we have we have Barack Obama, we have Bill Clinton, and we have Joe Biden, all members of the same party. But there was a big difference among them, and that is that Joe Biden is a cold warrior. Joe Biden is older, and he still had that attitude to Russia, that healthy attitude of distrust. I must say, I was thinking after Biden, we're not going to have any more cold warriors in the White House because they've aged out. I think we I think we should be thankful that we that we had them around for as long as we did. John McCain was another cold warrior who who I think he and Biden being on opposite parties they still work pretty closely together because they both were patriots and they both both had a very clear picture of where the danger lay. I'm not looking forward to the to the last cold warrior in the White House. Let's see what happens next. We'll see. I think that more eyes, I hope, will be opened by what's going on now and that we avoid getting another naive president. I don't think that will happen. But but at this point in the book, we are looking at the the Chinese are looking askance, if you will, at Russia's endeavors in Ukraine. In fact, China didn't want to play. And had they been consulted before the war by Putin, he would have been reminded that China had invested heavily in Ukraine. They didn't want to have their investments damaged. They wanted to recoup what they invested and make a profit there. They were displeased about that. They were also displeased because up to this point, they had not had the kind of kinetic war history with the rest of the world. It truly would have sullied their image had they become partners in the war. They turned away from it. The, the idea that this could happen, I don't know who in the West really thought it could go the other way, but I certainly did. I certainly thought, oh boy, the Chinese might go in with the Russians. I really was concerned about that, but I hadn't read the book at that, that point when I had that thought. It's good that they didn't. That when we're moving along fairly well, I'd say, but I'm really anxious to talk about Turkey when we get there, unless you think there's more to say about China. James, I always have more to say about everything. <laughs> I just I found this part of the uh, chapter really fascinating because I hadn't realized uh, what he talks about here that China really they never recognized the annexation of Crimea. He points out really China in some ways was the more sophisticated of the two and that China was they were looking after their economic interests they were they favored economic leverage. I see, we see that with Chinese are not threat not uh, saber rattling threatening wars and everyone. 
Russia really had, John McCain said Russia was a gas station with an army. It, it, it shows here they, the, Putin seems to have felt that the only way he could express the dominance on the world stage was to was to have a military victory, which is, as Plotkin said last week, it's not going as planned. In the end, this 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 attack on Ukraine actually, as James mentioned before, galvanized the West, galvanized Ukraine into an even more cohesive unit than it had been before the war. The Ukraine Ukrainians are tremendously united now. The results of Putin's special military operation, which he had apparently told them was going to be a very short, very quick takeover, and that would be the end of it, which they didn't actually go along with, but didn't, were remaining neutral. What it's turned out to be has turned out to be quite bad for China because of their economic investments in Ukraine. This explains something I really didn't understand, which is why I expected China to be much more supportive of Russia. I'm glad they weren't, but this explains why. They never really bought into Russian expansionism, Russian imperialism, which I thought was very interesting. James, I think we've got a couple of hands. I think we'll go to Falk Tyrants and then yeah, never give up. I think you must be on a PC. I see your hands. We'll get to you next. Uh, Falk Tyrants. I was just going to mention that uh, Never Give Up was trying to get your attention. That's very nice. Thank you. Never Give Up. Over to you. Forgive me, I have a speech impairment. I haven't read the book, but at no time have you mentioned what China did to Hong Kong and what they, what China did to the Muslim Chinese. I don't think Putin would have done anything. That might be, but that's not the topic of the book. It's not, it's not, I, it's an important story. Who China is, why they um, treat some minorities the way they are, all are important topics, but it's not part of this book. The guts to do it if China hadn't done it. I, I do see your point. I think that, that Putin was there are several things that gave him, made him much bolder. One was the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, which made the United States look much weaker than it is. Also, the fact that China has been, has had Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps for a year and using them as slave labor. We still went and bought our Nikes and people didn't complain about it. And the takeover of, of Hong Kong. I think it's a very good point. As James said, this is outside of the scope of the book only because it's, we could go into the Armenian genocide. We could go into the Holocaust. There are all sorts of things in the past that made Putin more, more made him more confident that he could get away with it. With so thank you for bringing that up. It's it is a little out of the scope of what we're talking about. But you're absolutely right. All of these things made Putin think he was going to get away with it, and thank God he was wrong. James, he was very wrong. Thank God. Yes, indeed. That was China. You probably. We all remember this from last year, the importance of the Bayraktors from Turkey, the drones that Ukraine started to get. At the same time, Mr. Putin was looking for something like, and so he went to Iran. He ended up getting the Shahids, or as they're variously pronounced. What, what this implied for Turkey was interesting because Turkey has always been at the edge of the West, part of NATO but reluctant to take on Russia directly, but and using NATO very much as a shield against Russia, but then having a largely Muslim population, as I understand it, they very much on their own with and Erdogan being 
pretty pretty assertive with power, let's just say that. He was in the ascendancy at this point. The way that, that this happened was that before there was there was no peace talks, there were the beginnings of peace talks. Turkey was one of the places where Ukraine was comfortable having peace talks. I, and, and stop me if if you want to want me to slow down, but I just want to get to this part because I find it very interesting that uh, Putin kept uh, Erdogan and some Turkish officials waiting when they visited, right? It was one of these, say, yeah, we'll keep you outside here. You guys just cool your jets and wait and wait. When Putin was in need, he went to Turkey. What do you know? They kept Putin waiting. It was only 51 seconds, which I guess they have these things timed out for the the height of the president, or or maybe not the height, but rather the power of the president that they're entertaining. Never keep a Putin waiting more than 51 seconds, maybe a rule. I don't know. Anyways, the point is that at this point, Erdogan was very much asserting his stature and the stature of Turkey over that of Russia. And so, of course, Putin was displeased. This wasn't, and I apologize, Robin, but I don't remember exactly if this was the case. This was not the case where Putin stuck out his hand to shake hands and didn't get a handshake. I don't believe that was the case here, although I do remember that meme from a lot of other places. Putin wasn't getting much respect at this point in any case. 100% he was getting what he deserves. It was, I, I remember, I don't know if it was in the book or someplace else, but I know when the Turks went to Moscow and they were kept waiting, they were kept waiting in a room that had depictions of Russian triumph over Turks in earlier wars and that kind of thing. It was really incredibly in your face kind of thing. When Erdogan had the chance to dish it out to Putin, it was very funny. Putin had to take it because he needed, he needed Erdogan at that point. It was good. I want to go a little bit more over over this the this issue about the Turks, but let's go to fuck tyrants first, and then we'll go over that. Uh, I remember the videos where Putin was twitching and he was very anxious and he was doing weird stuff with his hands and waiting for eternity, as it seemed. He he's, he was used to dishing it out. He was not very good at taking it. He could have. He, he could have behaved himself in a way that would make us think that he didn't care, but he certainly didn't. You could tell he cared a great deal, which I'm sure Erdogan was watching on closed-circuit television and enjoying it himself. But anyway, okay, well, the, what Return of the Ottomans was the name of this part of the chapter. He goes over the Turkish-Russian historical rivalry, much of which went through Crimea, which was interesting. He says, Paul Plunkin says, and I'm sure he's right, that that Turkey had no interest in Russia prevailing in Ukraine. They actually, and this I didn't realize either, they had not supported the annexation of Crimea, and they gave a lot of support to the their Tatars in Crimea, who were also Muslim, as are most Turks. They rolled out the Montreux Convention to thwart Russia, bringing more, more ships into the Black Sea. That's an interesting, as a footnote, we need to talk about this convention later because I've heard some confusing things about this lately, but I don't want to break into that right now. And the, as James mentioned, the Bayraktars that were sent to Ukraine and I, the Baikar, the company that, that supplied them, there was even a situation at one point, as you probably remember, James, it was, what's his name? Pratula, the, was a comedian television personality in Ukraine, has a wonderful charity they raised, they, they crowdsourced enough money to buy two of these Bayraktars from Turkey. And they raised the money and they went to, to Baikar and asked them to supply to them. And Baikar said, no, 
take the money you can use it for something else. We'll donate the two Bharatars, which I thought was just amazing. Uh, uh, took that money and used it to buy a surveillance satellite, which now sits over the Black Sea, which I think after the war is over, we may find out exactly how important that surveillance has been to what's been going on lately in uh, in Crimea. Anyway, so it's they certainly covered themselves with, uh, and it, it was a, when they're actually building, I think they were going to build a factory in Ukraine to produce more of these good people. As Plohi points out, at the same time, Turkey still needs needed Russian gas, and they still, it's a Big Turkey is a big tourist destination for Russians, so they didn't want to totally. They're walking a tightrope. They did. They don't want Russia to win in Ukraine, but they don't want to totally alienate them either. This explains to me a lot more some of the some of the puzzling behavior that that has come out of Turkey at times during all of this because they didn't seem to be consistent to me. But I can see why now. They're trying to keep both sides in the mix, as he points out. They. They've had a very important role as a mediator. The grain, the grain deal, which with all of its flaws, it at least allowed the grain to be get out to the the world. So much of the world, the poorest part of the world, is very dependent on Ukrainian grain, and and Erdogan managed to to get this done. That's I think we need to be grateful to him for that. It's this is Turkey is one of the countries that is going to benefit from this in the long run because they have established themselves as a regional leader and even a political actor in the global arena, which they hadn't been before this. That's for the return of the Ottomans, James. Yes, it was very, it's been very clear to me that Turkey is a nation onto itself. It is not anybody's puppet or proxy or anything like that. Erdogan really pushed the nationalism and has successfully done that. Let's see, won an election and he's he's still in great power. I think what the moves he's made so far have worked. However, his interest in the European Union, he's not any closer to that than he was before this war started and hasn't really made progress on that. Not everything has turned up roses for him. It does show that the that he, he and Turkey both have been able to walk that fine line between the two sides in this war, and which come the day, if ever, that NATO should step into it for whatever reason, like an attack on the Zaporizhia nu- nuclear power plant or something like that, Turkey would be in a hard place then. I don't want to spend too much time on that either. Um, happy to uh, jump ahead where you like, but I see we've got we've got somebody coming up, and I'd like to see what they have to say at this point. So Robin, back to you for a second. Less than 10. Hi, Primus. What do you have to give us? Hey, Robin. Hey, James. Hope you're having a good night. I'm driving, so if you ought to, just a little choppy. That, that's why. So a couple thoughts on here with Turkey. And the, Turkey can be part of the EU if Erdogan's not part of Turkey, at least the leadership on there. I mean, unfortunately, he's taken the taken Turkey uh, a populist and more of a religious bent than it was because for the longest time it was very straight down the line secular, dating all the, back, all the way back to Ataturk. And to the point where the actually, what I think at one point they'd actually checked one of the governments that took more of a religious bet prior to it. That's kind of Turkey for you. They are definitely taking on more of a regional role on there. In a lot of ways, it's returning to a historic place that they had in the region. 
because with Turkey, they're surrounded by Turkic states. Azerbaijan is one. You can go out as far out as Turkmenistan because the Turkic people had originally came from those areas and then they migrated west, sometimes at the behest of the Byzantines who brought them in as mercenaries. Or at least some of them, you had progressively larger populations of connections and that kind of thing. It's been a kind of a Western migration, a Western for the Turks, all the way dating all the way back to the 1650s when they tried to get into Europe and all that. Now, I definitely think Turkey wants to be part of the European Union. I actually think someday they will be. I think that's quite likely because in a lot of ways, it's a very westernized country, but Turkey is a lot like France in that they're very much focused on their self-interest, but they're still a reliable NATO partner. And you guys are right. It's a difficult position they're in because they very much depend on Russian gas and they have to have a, uh, a relationship with the Russians to some degree because Russia as a political entity isn't going anywhere anytime soon for good or bad and mostly bad, but they still have to deal with them there in the neighborhood. They have to make some maybe difficult decisions, but I really think Erdogan does like playing both ends against middle. That's not an uncommon thing. The Indians did that for a while. The Egyptians did that for a while and to some extent still are. And it, it makes sense to retain some degree of political independence. In a lot of ways, Turkey is in NATO, not because Turkey needed NATO, but NATO needed Turkey. So there's that. Also, just generally speaking, why they're being such a pain in the ass about allowing Sweden in and wanting concessions. At one point, Greece left NATO and they came back and the Turkish government at the time never really extracted any you know, significant promises or concessions or anything like that for anyone for their vote. They just, just let them back in for whatever reason. I think that's something that's called Erdogan. He's looking at it as the opportunity to extract every last bit of political concession that he can get out of NATO, whether it's for F-16s or help with the Kurds, which is a very sticky, complicated relationship, which M comes on here and he's explained that kind of thing several times on here. I encourage everyone to listen to M when he's on talking about the overall region and the history of it, because it is quite fascinating. But ramble aside, one other thing I wanted to mention is you're talking about, about the Bayraktars, and it may seem like the Bayraktars, the drones, the TV2s have disappeared from the area and they haven't, they just haven't been used in a attack capacity in a while because at the very beginning of the war, it was their heyday because the Russian mobile air defense is not really mobile because they still have to stop and get set up and get organized. They didn't have their shit together in the beginning of the war because they thought it was just going to be a stroll down the road to Kiev rather than an actual fight. Once they realized what they were getting into, got the air defense set up, got their networks organized. It's very difficult for the Bayraktars to operate in any sort of attack capacity because ultimately it's a large drone operating at medium altitude. It's going to show up on a radar and get blasted. What they're doing now, which is arguably more valuable than plinking infantry units or artillery or whatever, is still flying at some altitude with some very effective cameras and electronic support, listening devices basically that can see across the battlefield and listen across the battlefield and provide very important intelligence. Um, they, the Ukraine probably lost about 30 Bayraktars, but they probably acquired maybe twice as many, I, I would think, at this point. So it's still a very valuable uh, platform. I think as the war goes on, Vicar is going to send more effective versions of the TB2, basically the next iteration of that, which might be more survivable on here, but we'll see what actually happens with that. But Turkey 
Again, many times they've frustrated me. They've done some very effective things to help Ukraine, whether it's not necessarily donating stuff, but they've definitely sold them some things. They had, you know, the Turkish version of HIMARS in before HIMARS had showed up in very limited numbers. It was basically like a laser designated, a long range missile, which the Bicars could designate for. Kind of useful. They may have been some of, among the first to send Western style cluster munitions. They've sent quite a few, probably in the terms of hundreds of vehicles like MRAPs or APCs, basically the same thing, really. I've seen guns and equipment over there. They're being very supportive. Most of it is for cash, but they're still doing it. Bicar has been very, very supportive. I believe the guy who runs Bicar is actually a relative of Erdogan. He's signed off on that. Yes, they are building some sort of factory inside Ukraine. That's certainly useful on here. I know Russia wanted Bicar to build something in Russia to develop drones with them too, because why not ask? That got shut down pretty immediately. But this war has been really great for Bicar in the sense of advertising. So, you know, if they can get more drones out there, it's a great advertisement for other countries like Azerbaijan has bought quite a few of them. There's African countries that are looking for them. It's a very good um, public relations thing for them to just get the drones in there for this war. For every one they donate, they're probably going to sell 10. So it's still goodwill. It's still very valuable. And like with a lot of weapons manufacturers or whatever, this is, you know, a good proving ground for what they're working with. Because they also want to not just put the drones up there, but they want to see how the Russians deal with it in terms of like electronic countermeasures. Can it be jammed and that kind of thing? And then work on updates to make it a, a more secure, effective platform. At least that's my take on it all. I could be wrong. Hey, thanks, Framus. Appreciate that. Uh, a good take, I think, a good addition to the information here. Robin, I'm just going to go right ahead and uh, say this about uh, this whole arrangement with Turkey being the middleman, and they did arrange the grain deal. That was successful until the next day after the grain deal was formed when uh, Russia targeted Odessa and hit some of the grain equipment there. It, it went south really quickly. Er Erdogan did good, but didn't really lead to much in that regard. That, that, that's a main thing that ends this, the part about Turkey. There's a little bit more about it, but Robin, go ahead. Thanks, James. Yeah, Primus, thank you so much for that. We needed somebody with a, a lot more military knowledge than I had that really you cleared it. You made something clear. I appreciate it. Marcus, how are you? Can't complain. I What's have up? No, no notes on Primus's talking as usual. Splendid work. Splendid work. No notes. I just wanted to say, as per usual, every deal you make with the Russians is like a deal you make for a hound to watch a hen house worth it's not worth a single ounce of ink or effort or thought that certainly is true i think that's something that that's something we need to keep front and center in this because as this drags on there's going to be there's already a little more pressure on president Zelensky to make some kind of a deal with russia he's been very straight about that saying that there's no way to make a deal with them because they never keep any agreements they they agree to good point James, the closing of the West. So before that, yeah, back to privacy. I was just going to say, it, I understand, you know, Zelensky has been under a lot of pr more pressure to strike some sort of deal with the Russians, and maybe he has been in a little while. Uh, doesn't really matter because 
there's no, as much as some people in the West may just want to just get past all of this so they can go back to buying cheap Russian gas and remove the sanctions and pretend this never happened and go to the status quo antebellum. No, no Ukrainian leadership is really going to do that. They, what president of the country could consent to giving up 23% of it? And if the Ukrainians are going to keep fighting and they are going to keep fighting, whether they have the support or not, it, they're dragging along the West with them. I think that's a good thing because it's, how best you put it? It's what Zelensky has done. I think that the, the best thing about Zelensky is I, I really have no idea what he's done really as a wartime leader. He's played the role very well, but I don't know about the organization and what he's doing necessarily behind the scenes. But whatever's happening, at least he's not getting in the way of it. Sometimes that's the best thing a political leader can do, right? He's been fantastic at going out and basically telling people, these are what your values are. This is the right thing to do. Why aren't you doing that? And not letting them hide behind whatever they want to hide behind to duck their own values out of convenience and, you know, making them deal with it. And he's done that and he's done that, you know, with in Poland, he's done that in the United States, he's done that in the UK, he's done that every time he's gone to visit a lot of these countries, especially early on, you know, with a speech customized, lobbying customized to that particular country's values and interests and so on. Why is the moral and right thing to do to help Ukraine, but also the practical reason to help Ukraine in the end? And for whatever reason, that message is hitting a little bit less than it has, but I would discourage people from being too discouraged on there because there's been things like what Sullivan said, the national security advisor, that the window on support for Ukraine is closing. That piece drives me a little bit nuts because I don't think people are reading between the lines on that, right? What that comes down to is that's not the Biden administration saying that. That's the Biden administration basically saying that unless Congress gets his act together and provides the additional support, then it's going to be an issue. If they do, then it's right back to it. I do believe there's going to be a package that's going to come through as part of the next National Defense Authorization Act or some sort of separate bill because it's going to pass through the House. If they can get it to a floor vote on the House, and there are ways to do that. Robin, you'd probably know that procedure better than I would. Now that this is in any way about domestic politics, anyone else who's listening outside of the U.S., yeah, speaking even as a Republican, I'm confident it's going to happen because the United States has too much self-interest on that in Ukraine, surviving and winning, being victorious in this war. I mean, we're too invested to walk away from it. Unless we have, I guess it's not impossible, but it's, it's very unlikely to me for a lot of reasons we don't need to get into. Anyways, just wanted to unburden myself of that particular thing. Anyways, back to you. Thanks, Primus. That, that was quite useful again. Marcus, yeah. Just really quick, Primus reminded me of something. When was it that I think Boris Johnson was still in power or was just before or after he he lost power that we had we we saw Zelensky travel to Britain as well as other countries and make the case for the need to supply an air force right away god it has to be it had to have been in 20 or maybe the very start of 2023 the point being is that was driven obviously by internal calculations of of the and if that if instead of signing a fighter instead of having a signed fighter jet fighter helmet to give to give people they that people gave him a jet and a 
well, many jets, the summer offensive would have been a very different animal. Just It just goes to show the sagacity of the war planners in Ukraine is less debatable than that of the war planners in the West or the politicians in the West because they obviously knew and foresaw these issues more than a year ago and gave us more than a year notice and then sent the president of their country on a speaking tour, essentially, to all of our capitals to say, ah, we really need this. If we're going to need it, of course, now that we didn't deliver that, we're, we're all like, man, you didn't do enough. It would be intensely frustrating to be the Ukrainians right now. I can't imagine. Thanks. Just prime is so reminded me. They're interesting. Yeah, I, there's been a lot of debate about what would have been different had we gotten F-16s right away. It wouldn't have been a permissive environment. It would have been far away from any kind of air superiority. Unless we had a, been able to move like 120 F-16s or something like that in country all at the same time. And that wasn't going to happen. I assume and that's what they also, asked for, though. Well, Marcus, and, and what we also know is that we don't know. We, it, that, so, in other words, a known unknown, how the information leaks from the United States impacted things. And we do know that there was quite a bit of information about foreign countries' systems that was leaked out. We also know that the Russians, far from air superiority themselves, still exercised more or less control of the air, but it was not permissive for them either to fly. Very contested airspace. Would 120 of them made a difference back then? Yes, certainly they would have. Any amount would have. But on the other hand, given the amount of kit to be destroyed, it can well be argued that this is the right path to have taken. I know people don't want to hear that. That's just my opinion, and most of you disagree with me. But it's also quite possible that they will go in at optimal time because all of those air defense systems of the Russians, not all of them, but... James, I think you have your thumb over your, your, your mic. Carefully, just you faded out. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know how that happened, but I'll try to avoid it. Uh, just the idea that, uh, again, optimal time to uh, get aircraft into the country may be uh, as it has happened. I hear everybody say uh, the opposite. It's just a point of view. No point arguing it, but there's more than one way to look at this. I see Primus is going to argue it, though. Uh, Primus? Yeah, better Primus than me. James, I'm not going to argue with you. I actually agree with you. Here's the thing about that. In a sense, it would have been nice to get planes in there as soon as possible on there. But for what aircraft cost, what it would have taken out of the available aid pool, it just wasn't the most effective thing to send. I, I think in the West, we're very air power focused and we think aircraft are the solution to all problems. But it's actually a very cost intensive way of dealing of a particular set of issues. And they're a great platform when it's not a high threat environment. When it is a high threat environment, it's maybe not the best way to go about it. I do know if we were in like a desert storm situation or a Gulf War II situation or three, depending on how you want to call it, count your Gulf Wars there, if we didn't have the Navy and the Air Force of their thousands of planes and it was just basically force on force, army on army, we probably would have noped out of that situation or just because of the casualties that would have been incurred. Um, that the Ukrainians have been having 
you know, issues without air power is both completely on ex- completely expected because it's not something we would have attempted without air power. We don't necessarily have the doctrine for doing a lot of this stuff with air power. When we're trying to teach them and provide them of training on this is how to conduct an offensive, we're basically, it's like having a tripod with two legs. It doesn't really work. And that, that's the situation that they're in. They need the aircraft. How effective the aircraft are going to be is debatable. I know when Zelensky went over to Johnson and they gave him a helmet and there's talk that Ukraine would be getting Eurofighters and so on. That really wasn't the best, the best kind of platform for the Ukrainians to use. Because what the Eurofighter is, it's basically, it's a very high performance aircraft designed to fly at high altitude and high speed and basically yeet AMRAMs and Meteor missiles at targets. It has a lot of that extra energy from a fast launch platform at high altitude. There's a lot more smash kinetic energy with the missile, so it go fly further and faster, right? You can't operate at high altitude in Ukraine anywhere near the threat zone. Eurofighter wouldn't really be very useful since the engines are optimized for flying at high altitude. They're shit at low altitude. It wasn't the right platform. F-16 was the right platform. Well, I do think there was some dragging of feet or whatever in regards to that. The word that I've heard is that Ukrainians may ultimately end up with about 200 F-16s. So it seems to be conceptually what is being thought of, assuming enough support sticks with the program and that kind of thing. They're coming. The battlefield effect on that, though, it's probably not going to be everything that we hope for, just because I think a lot of these planes are going to be optimized for a air defense role, okay? Particularly, even with all the SAM batteries and so on out there, there's still a lot of gaps in Ukraine's air defense. There just has to be, because it's a massive country. And they're going to use those those planes, and which is how they've been using them anyways, for the most part, for basically filling in those gaps between the, the circles, between the air defense bubbles. It's going to help protect Ukrainian infrastructure. It's not going to have a huge impact on the battlefield until it does. Because you're going to see, you're going to see the Russians are going to try to draw them out and get them involved in an air battle at some point. They're probably going to bring in bombers with escorts over the Black Sea and try to get the Ukrainians to come out and play and suck them into a air defense battle, which frankly, I'm not sure they can win even with F-16s. Certainly, the Russians can afford to take the losses the Ukrainians can. And it takes you probably about two years to really fully train someone to be a flight leader to lead a two-ship. It can be up to six years to learn how to deploy a F-16 in a four-ship, which is the optimal way to do that because of all the things going involved in tactics. And yeah, these guys have a lot of experience flying, but you know how Soviet aircraft fight is a Soviet-style aircraft fight, Russian-style aircraft fight is a lot different. In a ways, the F-16s are almost going to have to adapt to that style. It's going to be a you know, melting pot of tactics because they don't have a AWACS. They don't have things like Patriot batteries trying to control intercepts and control the air defense uh, around the country. There's been a couple interesting command and control nodes that have been shipped over, which are probably managing the air defense for the entire country. I expect those things are probably the most secret things in Ukraine in terms of where the location is. Probably a lot of people in the Ukrainian government don't even know where they are. They're very important because they're using things like Link 16. Now, if Griffins get in there, it's going to be a little bit different because they have a much, they have access to a much longer range missile, and that's going to be probably one or two ship flights of those things. 
armed with these long-range missiles that are going to make dealing of these glide bombs and so on is going to be a good counter to that. When the Gripens show up, if they show up, that's what's going to have more of an America's then it's going to push the Russians back with that because they're not going to want to get anywhere near a meteor missile because that has like a no escape zone of about 60 nautical miles, something crazy like that, where the, the missile is just under fire. You just physically can't outmaneuver the thing. It will kill you. It's just, you can't make it miss. Really, at least not kinetically. You might be able to decoy it, but probably not. But it can go out to over 200 kilometers, really beyond the range of the aircraft's radar in a lot of cases. So, that's what's going to be a very useful platform, and that is powered all the way through a flight. So it doesn't care if you launch it from uh, a low altitude where AMRAMs do. So that's why F-16s aren't going to be really around the battlefield a whole much. They're not going to turn around the Battle of Andeep or whatever by flying in close air support or whatever, because they, it's a very risky use of a very limited platform. Limited in terms of numbers, not capability, of course. You will see them use cruise missiles and that kind of thing. That'll be, they'll be doing some of that, but that won't be, that might be colorful, but it's not going to be super effective in terms of chipping the scales. If protecting the infrastructure and so on is where we're going to be the most useful. Those are my thoughts. Thanks, Primus. I think one of the things we can be assured of is that once the Ukrainians get the F-16s in country, they're going to be using them in ways we never thought of. That's been the pattern so far. It's going to really be interesting to see what use they make, because I'm sure a lot of planning has been going on already. And I think you give a Ukrainian a rock and a rubber band, they'll do something with it because they seem to be able to do just about anything. I'm hoping that we get um, some good surprises when the F-16s finally get into country. Let's go. We have, we've got a bunch of hands, so let's get, we'll go through them and then we're going to finish the chapter. Marcus, for every child, and G-Man, your hand just went down. Was that intentional? I have you on the list until you tell me otherwise. Anyway, Marcus. I don't want to get into the whole thing, but there's some straw mans going on in there. For example, um, no one, I never purported that the battlefield effect would be from the F-16s. In fact, I completely agree. F-16s would hunt down sources of things destroying civilian in infrastructure. Although I certainly think they could help push back the glide bomb threats. But the question is, okay, then can you use a Gephardt for what the thing, what the Gephardt was designed to do if you're able to push back other threats? Although Gephards are obviously awesome for drones and you're not going to hunt a drone, hunt Shahid with an F-16. You understand my point. It would change the nature of the way they're protecting the infrastructure and allow them to use some military aspect, assets that are mobile assets designed to destroy aircraft potentially, in different ways. Certainly, that's a factor. The other factor is the Ukrainians are not as risk-averse to losing things unless they're high focal point Western things like Abrams, where that's more of a political problem for them. They've used their jets and their helicopters in ways that are much more endangering to the pilots in a way that's proportional to the relative circumstances, right? I'm not saying it's inappropriate. I'm just saying Different circumstances produce different risks that are acceptable or not. My only point is they made this point early and often, and I think uh, it's fair to say that they would be used in different ways. I don't want to argue about it. We're in, it's a dip, we're in a different place right now. It doesn't really matter. Um, it's just another case of us dilly-dallying, and that's what it is ultimately. We have the money to send planes prorated at different values. There's F-16s in the desert. I know they have to be refurbed, but it's America, right? We're not talking about a third world country. They could do it. 
Yes. Yeah, thanks. James, we have three more hands and we have about 45 minutes left. Let's go through. I'd ask everyone, please, let's try to keep it Keep it tight is what we want to make sure this is the end of the book this thanks this is the end of the book this week and we're not going to go over to the next week with it. So we want to make sure we get it done. Anyway, Primus for every child and then GMN. Okay, Primus. You got it, Primus. Talking into a muted mic, Primus. Just quick thing. Can you hear me now? Yep. Perfect. Yep. All right, fellas, I want to rise commercials. No, I, I would just agree mostly with Marcus. I'm very I think a big second order effect of having the F sixteens there. I didn't mean to intrude a book club. I just showed up because I was just driving and figured it'd be time to talk. Sorry. Is once they show up, it's going to allow some of that air defense, which has been protecting infrastructure, to be moved forward. That's going to have a big effect on keeping the Russian aircraft and helicopters away, too. That's going to be another consequence of it, because then you could move the that stuff closer to the battlefield and away from the infrastructure. So it can do more of what it's designed for. That's all I have to say about that. Appreciate it. We weren't, we, I wasn't trying to say that, that your responses were not appropriate to the book club. You were right on point. So I appreciate it. I, that, so don't take that the wrong way, please. For every child, then G man. I didn't take that the wrong way. I just no, noted that. Thanks. Good. Thanks. For every child. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, James. Ukraine knows what to do with what they have. When we learn how to prevent genocide, the rest of us will know what we should have done. Thank you. That's, that's, that's unfortunately very true. Amen. Yeah. Good morning. I'm going to skip my question because I'm not sure what it was. I'm just checking the resources and, and then I'll come back to it after. Carry on. Thank you. It's nine o'clock at night, man. Not, not, with not, not in the real world. Not in the real world. <laughs> just in your fantasy. Just in your wee game over there in the in what you call North America. Anyway, the rebellious colonies. I think we're called, aren't we? Uh, all right, James. We are up to the closing of the West, which we're basically this is the end of the chapter. Putin is surprised by the West by the United action against him. He wasn't expecting that. He was expecting a three-day war. But unfortunately, the sanctions don't have the immediate big effect that would have changed his behavior because Europe was quite dependent on Russian natural gas as at that time. As the war has gone on, we've seen the sanctions become more effective as Europe really did a great job weaning themselves off of Russian energy products, except for Hungary. And the sanctions are having more of an effect. The lack of imported component, components to things that are built in country and also the loss of European markets, all of that has, has forced Russia to turn to different different markets, namely China and India, to sell their oil and gas at quite a discount. Plucky points that China has been very smart with this and limits their purchases of Russian gas so that they don't become dependent on the Russian smart move. Other people should have learned that too. China is becoming the dominant one in the relationship now. The last thing he mentions was the summit between Biden and Xi, which happened, not this most recent one, obviously, because that was after the book was published, but the previous one where there was, we don't know what all was discussed there, but two things we know for sure is that there was an agreement that a confrontation between China and the U.S. should be avoided. The second one, which China has, I think, convincingly to Putin, is that, that 
Putin should be stopped from using nuclear weapons in Ukraine. That was, a, I think, a big bright line with, with China. That is the yes. end of the chapter, James. That's right. The closing of the West is such a, a tantalizing uh, title for me, and it really speaks to what has been going on since Slohe finished writing the book, which he finished in February of this year. What we've seen since is that there's been more sanctions applied. There has been now literally a closing of Europe up in Finland, and I wouldn't be surprised if that approach to tackling Putin spreads because it's law lawfare, right? They're just using the law against other nations and shipping people through their country to the border, dumping them and moving on. So there is there's a lot more that can be done to shut down Russia. I hope eventually that we get to the point of an embargoing them. Uh, we know that uh, the oil in particular is of interest. The all of the tools of war and their components have been specifically targeted. The companies, I'm sorry, inside of Russia that produce those have been targeted with the latest rounds of U.S. sanctions. The European Union came out with a new set of sanctions. This closing of the West is very much continuing. It is, it's hopeful signs. This is, again, written back uh, in February. And it also is important to note that the movement of troops on the battlefield and the changing of the lines, there hasn't been a whole lot of that, but we know the right metrics to look at and they are not the amount of land. It, it's, it's most pleasing to me to see how they cut the supply of microchips by 90%. I thought that was uh, pretty astounding. You'd like 100% to be cut off, but still, it means that they haven't produced as many cars tractors or tools of war. Yay. It's very good. Yes. We're on to the afterword now. I don't know about you, but I was really struck by the first two paragraphs. I'd like to read it, but unless you would like to do that. Let's just see if Marcus has a comment that relates to the, what we've just finished before we start. Yeah. I think you should read. You should. Yeah, Marcus. Just really quick. What James is just saying about the car, the, the components being clamped down on. Did anyone see the most recent? There's a Twitter video. Someone in Russia took apart uh, an apparently Russian-made car from this year. Inside, if you go to the barcodes on stuff, it's all uh, Chinese parts. It just it's it it would they were the Russians are bragging that this was made and made all in Russia. They can't even put together the parts now to make their crappy cars. Very interesting. I think that a lot is being outsourced to China. That's pretty pathetic. James, go ahead. Will do. What I would say about this whole book is that the way to read this, at least for me, I should have started with the afterword. It would have given me a greater sense of calm than the initial chapters did. I would have been probably a happier reader throughout most of this because a lot of this, you just see the duplicity, the cheating, the kind of scumbaggery of Russia at every turn, it's disheartening to think that these people are willing to do anything. Here's why I think this is such a good afterword. This book was written between March 22 and February 23, the first full year of Russia's all-out war on Ukraine. When I finished, and of course this is Plohi speaking, finished the manuscript, it was difficult to predict the time and the way in which the war would end. The first 12 months 
had provided sufficient clues to discern the local and global changes that would influence and probably define the future of Ukraine, Russia, Europe, and the rest of the world. The Russo-Ukrainian War has become the latest military conflict in the long history of wars of national liberation, which can be traced back to the American Revolution. It also belongs to the long list of wars that accompanied the decline and disintegration of world empires from the Spanish to the Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian, and then from the British and the French to the Dutch, Belgian, and Portuguese. We know, how the, we know how these wars ended, with the political sovereignty of former colonies and dependencies in the concomitant devolution of former empires into post-imperial nation-states. I could go on with the whole afterwards, but I just thought that was a beautiful transition, and especially since it harks back to our, our own, us Americans, that is, our own revolutionary war fighting against empire. Robin? You are right about reading that first. I would have felt the same way because I did find this book as well written as it It was a slog in some areas because of how upsetting it was. It deals with things that are, you you see all the missed opportunities in the time when our country didn't come to Ukraine's aid as quickly as we ought to have and our other countries. This also reminds me of things that uh, Timothy Snyder writes about, about how empires end. And it's always with, with solid defeat, which should give us, help us to feel more committed than ever to making sure that Russia is soundly defeated, because that's the way you rid the country of a, the world of, of, of an expansionist, expansionist empire. Robin? Yes. It just gets better from here in some ways. It, it's also very clear, says Plohe, that Ukraine is going to emerge stronger and more united than ever. And that their identity as non-Russian is so clear to them. And the path that they're on toward EU membership is, is something that he sees as assured almost. It's, I don't know, I don't know how to say it best, but we'll, we'll get there. But he's really making the case that the, that the old ways that Russia had of doing things, just they can't work anymore. Go on, Robin. Marcus, I see your hand. Just give me a minute to get through this part. I'm going to call on you. One of the things that he that he points out, which I think is, is one of the most positive things about all of this, is first of all, that Ukraine managed to mobilize itself and at the same time an international uh, coalition, and that this ensures its continuing existence as an independent nation. That was very good to hear because sometimes you worry. One of the, and he also points out the unity within Ukraine. I've mentioned a book a few times. I'll mention again, it's called the Zelensky effect. And it is primarily about the development of an incredibly strong and cohesive civil society in Ukraine, a real model that I think that we in the United States and other places really could learn from that how Ukraine has pulled together and become a really an amazingly cohesive and united country. I, I really have a lot of faith that when the war is over, that cohesiveness will remain because I think it's been a it's been a one way street that way they have united. I think it will stay that way. Now let's go to Marcus for a minute. Just quick, I wanted to say as James is reading Chloe's afterward, um, how much I enjoy his style of writing. It's quite good. James, good reading. 
doesn't match your entire Zelensky speech, which I still think is was fantastic. I still think about how well you did that. That's great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Marcus. It's Plucky is a wonderful writer. I saw something. He has another. He has something new out recently. Whatever. I'm getting a, a huge bookshelf of things I haven't had time to read yet. I'm not sure I'm going to do it. I have, if anybody's figured out how to not sleep, please let me know. I need your input. Anyway, yeah. See Tracy about that. I know. Yes. Excellent point. I think it's called cocaine. Primus, tell me it's not cocaine. Well, no, it's much cheaper than that. No, what, what I, I like to do on here, and I'm sure you've heard me talk about uh, my caffeination habits, is usually taking two or three like espresso brewed coffees. Okay. You dip two to four bags of tea in it. You take oh, please. Uh, three, or four, three or four caffeine tablets dissolved, and then pour a five-hour energy into it. I prefer cherry you drink that sometimes you put some hot cocoa in there just for taste that and may maybe a splash of whiskey depending on how you want the rest of your day to go that's actually much better for you than cocaine in no way am i representing that it's good for you i expressed that once to my doctor and he was like you shouldn't do that he was right i've cut it down once or twice a week when i really need to grind through a day or two and not sleep give that a try primus you're a sick man <laughs> i'm I will wide awake this is okay. Good point. Point taken. Thank you. I have no doubt. There you go. Wide awake. There you go. We will continue. So wide awake. Bye. Almost like seeing another plane of existence. Like I've opened the third eye or something. That's what I probably stopped doing. All of the caffeine tablets. Good. No, I was just gonna say that the other thing that that Floki writes about in this is the idea about the, the idea of great powers, this idea that the subnations are held above others, that there's a bipolar world and the like. And he goes on at great length to kind of tear that idea down. That the, that so Stalin trying to grab Eastern Europe is his and the wasn't going to stand. But, and I'm going to jump to the end, but you're going to come back and save me from the end of this. Because what he gets to at the end is that he still recognizes that perhaps the U.S. is, in fact, the leader of the Western world. But Russia is no longer at the other end of that multipolar polling. It's now China. Go back for us, if you will, and, and recap some other things, because that's one of his takeaways, though. I did find the end a little disturbing. He's not necessarily wrong, but it, but the thing that I found really fascinating was, and this is something that a lot of people have written about, is this war, this terrorist invasion of Ukraine, this genocidal invasion, has has put has been led to the final death of the anachronistic model that Putin is trying to sell. That. Russia, Ukraine, and Be Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians are all part of the greater Russian nation. President Zelensky gave a speech, which unfortunately I don't think was recorded. I still haven't been able to find it, where he, he talks about, about, oh, where do I, I don't even, I still have it. He talks about, about how no matter what Ukraine wants to be without Russia, they'll put up with lack of electricity, they'll put up with lack of water, they'll put up with lack of food, anything to be without Russia. I think this is, I, I, and I've read from polls I've read and anecdotal evidence that I think the Ukrainians, up until this war, many of them felt that there was some kind of a Slavic connection. I don't think they ever thought that Russians were their brothers because there's been too much water under the bridge, too much uh, 
uh, suppression of Ukraine and Ukrainians uh, over the last few centuries for that, but they felt there was some kind of a commonality. I think Ukraine has been disabused of that notion. I'm hoping uh, Belarus has or Belarus has has been under the thumb of Putin the whole time. In fact, from what I understand, the Belarusian language is almost completely dead. They what they were not able to do in Ukraine with wiping out Ukrainian, the Russians have managed to more or less do in in in, in Belarus, which is a which is again a genocidal crime. It's a real shame. What what Plokhi talks about here is also that this. Ukraine is really terminating Russia's dominance over much of Eastern Europe with the the Eastern Europeans were never under under any illusion about what Russia was all about. But there's been much more recognition of it in the Western part of Europe, in the United States, the unprecedented and solidarity of the international community, along with the clear black and white of the moral dimension, who's the aggressor and who is the victim. Uh, all of this has militated for end of Russia's of Russia's putative status as a great nation, which it hasn't been for a long time anyway. He talks about that the, the foundations of the post-Cold War world are being undermined by uh, this, by China's increasing prominence, that the unipolar American world that replaced the Soviet American bipolar one is now back to spheres of influence again. We'll see if that's, if that ends up playing out that way. Uh, I think it is something to worry about at this point though. Marcus. Bipolar world thing is one of those great frauds perpetrated by Russia on the world that you can define yourself in a meaningful way is not America. That's like a, a, that's a stance to have. My stance is I'm not America. That was Russia's argument with so many countries. It's ridiculous, but it justified their alliances in so many ways, right? Obviously, the fear is that I'm not America mantle will be China because I don't think they're, well, they're as illiberal as Russia is, but so that's another problem just down the road when you align yourself with deeply illiberal states with permanent leaders when just when james mentioned it it's it is funny the other thing i wanted to say was how incredibly damaging it's been for russia i think that they simply can no longer say that they're they can sell products their natural gas products in europe they spent a lot of money building pipes and infrastructure i think even that small and air quotes change if putin had a time machine and a time machine that crystal ball let's say and he knew that was going to happen might have been enough to shut this war down because I think it's devastating financially for them. They're because they're now got they've all they've got everything in a vice, right? Whoever they want to sell to is you can't sell to Europe. <laughs> There's no way, right? France, the wool was pulled over France and uh, Germany's eyes. No matter what happens in Ukraine, I don't think they'll ever allow themselves to be bound so tightly to to an imperial power like that imperial in the imperialist sense less so than the effective enforcement of imperialism thanks they're not enough for every child hey i'm getting into a bad spot so if i drop off just just leave me behind one thing i would say with france and germany the wool wasn't pulled over their eyes on any of this but they did tie their own blindfold it's a decision they made knowing what the risks were no no one real was really fooling them about it they just took a calculated risk they were aware and they didn't care what could happen because they never really thought it would. Honestly, if you asked me five years ago, I wouldn't have thought it would either. I understand it, but they deluded themselves on it. The other thing I would point out is the bipolar world is not a 
delusion or a straw man. Because you look at the history of the Cold War, where the world was more or less organized between the West, like democracy and capitalism, and communism. You know, there, there were some fragments along the way with that. There were some places that tried to stay non-aligned and play both sides off of the other. It was basically organized along those ways, along those lines. And good luck if you ended up getting caught in between, between those two fault lines there, because you'd probably get ground down. There was, you know, there's a long litany of things of proxy wars in basically every continent except Africa, because no one could figure out if the penguins were capitalists or communists. Okay. We're going beyond that now. We've skipped going from a unipolar system where it was the U.S. to a bipolar system because there wasn't really an organizing philosophy on the other side of it. It's either you're with us or against us, and it was that simple. It's not that simple. It is trending towards a multipolar world. And we're in a unipolar system. The way things tend to go is a long tax, a long peaceful period. There then eventually people decide, hey, I want a little more of that peace and prosperity than I'm otherwise getting allocated by the hegemon, and then they resist and they try to tear it down and break away. That kind of tends to go straight towards a multipolar system, and a multipolar system is really the most inherently unstable thing. When you hear about things organized along the lines of great powers and spheres of influence, which is how Stalin saw things, because he looked at the world as a world organized among great powers. Right In that world of great powers, there was no room for small powers or independent countries. He, he was actually generally perplexed why the U.S. and the U.K. and France wanted to allow some of these other small countries to exist. Why not just put it all together and just rule it that way? He, he just fundamentally didn't understand that. When you have that kind of situation on there, great powers are just going to dictate and control all the smaller powers in the area until the differences are basically indistinguishable. So we want to avoid that. We, we tried to avoid that by having a rules-based order where no one's really given liberties or spheres of influence. There's right, there's wrong, there's illegal, there's illegal, and try to rule things along those lines, which from a international relations perspective is unique in history, mainly because international law is a new thing, at least to this level. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Robin. The, the lawfare of it has been very stabilized up until now when Putin decided to flip the table. Now, long-term China, I think uh, China is a very competitive threat to the U.S., and it may default back to a bipolar system when the multipolarity gets consolidated because the Chinese actually have a lot of soft power. Because they have a lot of money, they're willing to invest it, and they'll just invest it in your country for whatever project you want. They're not going to interfere in your politics. They're not going to say, hey, we're going to take this money away if we don't like your, we don't like what you're doing in certain ways, unless that certain thing you're not doing is not supporting China, in which case you have basically put a chain around your neck, which the Chinese can yank on there. For the most part, they're going to leave you alone, which is what's attractive to it. Now, there's a whole debt trap diplomacy they're doing, and that is not as good a deal as it seems where, but people don't like the U.S. and the West because we're more likely to have concerns about democracy and human rights records and corruption index and that kind of thing. If you're not rating well on that, where are you going to get the money from? There's a lot more people on the bad side of that ledger than the good side. Other thing I'd share quickly is in terms of closing up the West, which great book, I need, do need to read that, is at the Dubai Air Show, which is a huge arms expo, which concluded this week as following. The Russians weren't part of the main pavilion, but they did have a big hangar area. And they didn't conclude, at least openly, a single foreign sale during that arms conference. 
Lockheed and Boeing and Airbus and South Koreans had a particularly good air show. Um, the Russians, they, they got some, they got some shot skis and some lollipops. That's about all they went home with. I think that kind of shows the attitudes towards the Russians because after the, the, the Gulf War, when a show none of their stuff worked, people backed off on a lot of that. That was before the Russians had blood on their hands and there's challenges in the supply chain and that kind of thing where you're not even sure if the stuff is going to get delivered or if the check is going to be cashed. They're in for a tough time and you're going to see the Chinese probably replace Russia as kind of the arms deal of choice for the third world. You are starting to fade, Prime is not good overall, but is bad for Russia because they're able to export a country are either weapons to kill people or enemies. I think I covered everything there. Thanks, Primus. Appreciate that. Yes, it's it's interesting what's happened to the Russians in the way that it's interesting, like a train wreck. Yes, I appreciate that. Why don't we just go right to For Every Child. Hello. Greetings. Back again. Really quick, our, our short PSA, a Thanksgiving campaign to mention Ukraine to our families uh, during Thanksgiving Day. Huge success here in my corner. Uh, one one relative uh, was really tight-lipped about international affairs, but I got the message across that it was important. Uh, another relative was very had very mixed ideas about what was happening in Ukraine. When I mentioned Moldova, I was just so excited that he knew where Mo Moldova was and what what countries bordered it. It was certainly inspiring for me. Now then, for Christmas, I really think I'm going to be giving audible gifts of Plusky's Russo-Ukrainian war to as many family members as I can manage to convince they should listen to it. Slava Ukraine. Hey, I Slava. What a wonderful idea. I love it. Someone, James, mentioned to me that we ought to have a, a, a book sale. Uh, Amazon code. Exactly. We're, we have we'll have we have to look into that. Anyway, for each other, it's a wonderful idea. I actually bought five copies of the Road to, of On Tyranny, I should say, and I'm, I've been handing those out slowly with people too. Yeah, there's a lot we can do if we just keep the lines of communications open. A lot, there are a lot of people just know and don't know any better. The hardcore people we can't necessarily do much with, but a lot of people, if we just keep on talking, my son was very grumpy about my, oh, why is it always Ukraine? Why is it always Ukraine? He's my boy, and I'm not going to get angry with him about it, but I've kept on going on. As the months go on, I see he's beginning to get it. It sometimes takes a while. If we keep on, if we're calm and keep on trying to reach them, and because as Plohi says, it's a black and white situation. This is this, I can't think of much, many wars that have been more obviously black and white good guys and bad guys. This one is it. So we have all of the facts on our side. Robin, that, yeah. that is a good point. It, it's also a war that is, it's not a forever war because it is not like Vietnam and some of the other wars where uh, it'd be nice to instill democracy somewhere like in Afghanistan. They were clearly not ready for it, nor were the Vietnamese. Ukraine is more than ready for democracy. It's more than ready to have normal relationships with the rest of the world. It, it's more than ready to get rid of the corruption that Russia brought to them. This is this is a case where the need that's there is great, but the willingness to do this by themselves just shows that they are the kind of ideal partner for for this 
partnership of democracies. I avoided saying the West. It, it's really critical that we keep, keep that in mind, too, when we're arguing these points. This is all about some democracies helping out another. And they were a democracy already. They're just now getting to be a stronger democracy. I, I feel sure they'll win, but truly the future is in everybody's hands every day. We still need to take action to make sure that this, this comes to be, that Ukraine is free and prosperous and that Russia is soundly defeated. Amen. For every child, quickly, and then I, after For Every Child, James, I'm going to ask you about your parting, your parting thoughts about the book, For Every Child. Real quick, when Chuck comes on, I'm not really given a priority as a, as a panel speaker. There are so many more people that, that need to be there first. But if somebody would please ask him this for me, what's happening in Ukraine is not, is, it's not another Vietnam, but I need a different analogy because it's being referred to as another Vietnam by my family. And I need another analogy to say, no, it's not, a, it's not like Vietnam. It's like such and such, but I want, I want to nail it. I don't want to mess on this one. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, I'll, I'll, no, I'll hang on to that. I, if next time Chuck's not, I will try to remember to, to get that question. And it's a good question. Thank you. James. No, I was just going to say uh, that I, I think this is unprecedented. In fact, not completely, but uh, most of the uh, world's non-democracies are, are now advancing very quickly toward the ability to become democracies because the amount of trade and commerce and just communications among nations is greater than ever. I think that people, the common people, usins rather than the oligarchs or anybody like them, have a pretty good idea that of what does not work for common people. And that is corruption, oligarchy, those kind of things, not good for the common person. This is a case where it's very clear that they're way down this democratic road. And honestly, I hopefully this will tell us something different, but this is unprecedented in how close how close Ukraine is and has been to being ready to be a full-formed independent democracy for much longer than they actually were, much longer. They were ready way before 1991. There, there's there's Dryfly and Primus and Marcus all with their hands up, but you know what? Primus, Marcus, you just have to wait. We like, we want to get Dryfly in here. I hope you don't mind. Dryfly? This is exactly the opposite of Vietnam, 180 degrees opposite. There is nothing more opposite than what happened in Vietnam than is what is going on in Ukraine. For every child, tell your family this. In Vietnam, America did almost all the fighting, 99-some percent. There was very little democratic system in South Vietnam. It was absolutely corrupt beyond belief. And the U.S. did all the fighting. It was purely a domino war. We were worried about the dominoes. We went in and we fought it. We fought it, not them. We fought it. They fought some. There were Arvin troops. I've known people. I have a good friend of the, I should say a good friend of the family, but a people I know, a family I know whose father was in Arvin. But I'll tell you, they were a minority. I had tons of relatives who were in flying Cobra gunships and were infantry and artillery and all of that. 
it was just, you can't absolutely be more opposite it because we did all the fighting in Ukraine. We're watching, we're giving him some weapons. We're giving him some money and they're doing all the fighting, all of it. Not, not, not 9% of it, a hundred percent of it. The only Americans that are in Viet, uh, are in uh, Ukraine are ones who volunteered to go there, who believed in it, like Spain. If you wanted to find an analogy, this is more like the Spanish Civil War, where you had autocracy really pushing to crush a, a fledgling democracy. This is nothing like Vietnam. In, in Ukraine, you have a democratic government that absolutely is democratic by every single measure. Vietnam, you didn't have any of that. You had coups and you had puppet governments that, that quite frankly, we supported the coups. I know there's a lot of conservatives, really right-wingers, who say that the whole Maidan effort was a coup. It's, it wasn't. It was, they, they had self-determination. You know, the CIA didn't flip the government and put in a dictator like, or an autocrat, like what happened in South Vietnam with Diem and two. It, it was just completely different. When you talk to them, make that point. We fought in Vietnam. We are not fighting in Ukraine. They are fighting. We are helping them. It is so opposite. It's hard to even believe. I will listen. Thank you. Thank you, Drexel. I appreciate that. I think that that was a great response. Why don't we go to Privacy then, Marcus? That, that really was a great response. Just to clarify to listeners what he means by Arvin is the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. Um, so I, I guess... It, Best way to maybe explain the war to people is it's not Vietnam, because that's a terrible example for Ukraine and for our level of involvement on that. In a sense, it's very much like Vietnam for the Russians, because they're trapped in a quagmire without popular support. In that sense, it's very much like Vietnam for them. I don't really care about their problems. You could probably say, and from an American audience, it's probably a lot like supporting the British in the lead up to World War II, that we provided them with the <clears throat> the arms and equipment and the funds to keep going for a couple years during their darkest times of the war. We supported them for two or three years through Lend-Lease and that kind of thing, the arsenal of democracy. We didn't turn that on December 7th, 1941. That was going for a couple years beforehand. That had... I'm not going to credit it with the entire thing, but it certainly had a positive impact in helping to pull the United States out of the Great Depression because the factories were turned back on and people went back to work because they were building planes and tanks and so on for the British and to an extent the French till they threw them a towel there. I think that's maybe a better way to maybe describe it with that to family members. I think the best analogy of what the war actually is, you know, what I don't want it to end up being is like the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, I don't necessarily think the Spanish uh, Civil War is a great example, ultimately, just because the autocracy won on um, there, but it wasn't for lack of trying, uh, you know, because it was basically a battleground between autocracy, basically Nazism, fascism versus democracy and so on. I think Europe would have been a lot different, possibly even World War II would have been a lot different if the Spanish democracy there had received a lot more support. But fascism wasn't allowed to win on um, there. If we were to rewrite history, that would definitely be something I would change by providing more support, a lot like what we're doing in Ukraine now. In terms of what the war itself looks like, I think it's a lot like the Western Front in World War I, where you didn't, outside of the initial phases of it, 
you didn't really see the, the map move a whole lot over the next three years. But what you did see was a war of attrition between both sides, which the Germans eventually lost, in part due to massive support from, from the United States and cooperation among the Allies. They basically bled out the Germans, bankrupted them, they had mutinies, and they eventually decided, they, you know, the people, the soldiers decided that this war was more for the benefit of the oligarchs or the you know, robber barons or whatever they were called in Germany than the people having any interest in continuing it, which is how I think this is really going to go for the Russians and why I'm not terribly concerned about the map moving, but I'm a lot more concerned with the attrition that the Russians are experiencing because that, that's what's really determining it. The map moving one way or the other, this isn't the time the map is going to move. And even when World War I ended, the map didn't really move. The, the Germans tried one more big offensive or so, and that fell flat on its face after some initial successes. They took massive casualties, and then, then they started looking for a way out at that point. The whole ending of World War I is a complicated subject, but consider that the bad cliff notes of that. So I don't know if that helped with any of the explanation of every child. Uh, certainly, I've struggled with how, a good way to explain it to people. That's a lot shorter than how I just explained it. Uh, I hope that helped. Thank you. I appreciate it, Primus. Uh, I think uh, we'll know if it helped uh, when uh, For Every Child gets back to us with news about how it, it worked with the families. Appreciate that. Uh, Marcus? It's the uh, American Revolutionary War, 100%. Here's why. Russia was, a, was an imperial power that dominated Ukraine. Ukraine shrugged off these bonds. Now Russia's coming back to reinforce their dominance. What And guess who America is in this analogy? France. Many Americans might not realize this, but there's no American independence without France. France funneled a ton of money and weapons and Prussian mercenaries to the Americans. At the time, the reason why is because they wanted to stick it to England, obviously. However, American independence was financed by France. What came from that is a beautiful thing. Much like the Americans with Washington, the Ukrainians have a strong leader who is inspiring, who wants to create a democratic system that is better than what came before him. And there's a people who are down deep, ready to throw off the oppressors. They're the small dog in the fight. Not the dog with the, uh, the worst fighter, but the smallest dog in the fight. They're asking America for a bit more power because America's got the biggest bark. For me, that's the closest comparison out there. I, I agree with, with uh, Primus in that in terms of living memory, people would probably relate more to the idea of the first two years of World War II in England. But in my heart of hearts, I really believe than America's France during their war of independence, and they're paying it forward to Ukraine. <laughs> Honest to God. I, 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 there, there's a lot of analogies between this American Revolution and that. The only difference is that France really didn't share an ideological affinity for the U.S. at all. In fact, the, the real payback for the French helping us, and, and no good deed goes without, without being punished, was they ended up with the French Revolution. <laughs> Democracy spread to France. Because you can definitely look at King Louis, Marie Antoinette, and all that whole club. They were not exactly liberal Democrats or Republicans. They didn't believe in Republican government or Democrat pure democracy. They believed in monarchy, and they just wanted to stick it to the British. I do not believe at all 
that is the motivation in most of Washington. There's some that's the motivation, but I don't believe for most of us, that's the motivation. We look at a fledgling democracy that we could grow together with it, and it's a win for everybody. That's my personal opinion. As for Primus and his take on, is it like the Western Front, Verdun, Psalm, Eve, Passchendaele? I don't think so. I think it's far more like the Eastern Front. I think the battles that you're seeing in Avdivka and Bakhmut really parallel the Kerensky Offensive of 1917. Kerensky Offensive, and I've said this before, was one where the Russians felt obliged. This is the provisional government after the abdication of the of the czar felt ob obliged to continue supporting the the triple entendre the french britain and russia alliance and they had to have an offensive to keep their side of the deal they had an offensive it was somewhat successful they gained some territory but only a colossal loss after that the whole front collapsed and it opened up the door for the bolsheviks to have the october revolution if I said any, if I were to look at anything to me, it smells more like the, the Eastern Front, 1917, 1916, 1917, and that ballpark heading to 1918. The only question is what's going to come out of it? Who, whose side is going to flip and, and, and crater first? We all hope it's going to be Russia, but unless we give aid, there's no guarantee that'll happen. That's why it's so important that we call our congressmen, call our senators, do it all, do it Monday morning. They'll be all back at work. This is the time to make it happen. I, I hear the people who say, leave them a voice messages. I'm not a huge believer in that. I say, get a person on the line and make them make the checkbox and tell them why you're calling. Anyway, that's my take. And I'll listen. Thank you. Dry, dry fly. You're such a salesman. That's such a salesman's answer. Look them in the eye and shake their hand. I was a salesman for 35 years. I was an engineer who was brought into a fa small family business to help my father retire. I went from there to large OEM industrial sales, boardroom type stuff, but I did it from the factory floor. So I walked the factory floor, saw what the needs were, and then took it to the boardroom. I could do that. That was what I did. I you love know it, what? Dude. We there need to do my company. There we go. Sell it. Yes, indeed. Primus. Let's be quick because we we got to move on to just closing thoughts and then we turn over to a new crew in the co-host seats. Thank you. Drive by. I think... The Eastern Front is, just from my perspective, it's actually a fascinating, long conversation we could all have on it for us history nerds on here. I, I definitely think the Eastern Front is a good perspective for maybe how the Russians are seeing it, maybe more than Vietnam, um, or if we're going to go back a ways. I still think it's more of a Western Front situation from the Ukrainian perspective, but they're both really good analogies. In terms of what the Maybe the best way, the shortest way to explain the war to family members who might know a thing or two, at least is I think for Ukraine, this war is very much like the war of 1812 for the Americans. I'm there in that it was effectively their second war of independence. As they they declared their independence, they formed a country, but they were still a little shaky. They hadn't really fully come together until the War of 1812 happened, and yeah, we started it, but we were provoked into that by the British, who just didn't want to let us go. We were still doing, messing around with things and compromising territory. I think it was very much the Second War of American Independence. It wasn't until we fought and survived that war that America was truly independent from 
Great Britain's influence. We kind of moved past the you know, revolution and then try, them trying to roll it back or whatever. And that, that was about a 30 to 40 year difference between revolution and the war of 1812. I think that's a pretty good example over maybe what it means for Ukraine, because I have heard people describe the war, which I don't recognize that certainly, is almost like the war of the Soviet Union. It's being fought with weapons, lines, that kind of thing, or the last war of the Russian Empire, depending on how you want to view it. I think for Ukraine, it's very much the War of 1812. That's my thought. Thank you, Primus. Appreciate that. Yes, indeed, I do. Let's see. We have one more hand. Why don't we take Peter, Peter Hederly, that is, and then make our closing comments. Very quickly, thanks. I think Marcus has been really sneaky here. Just because it's three o'clock in the morning, in the UK here, he thinks no Brits are listening and he's trying to slip by this comparison with trying to compare the UK to, to Russia. That's really underhand and really sneaky, but there's someone always awake over here and it just happens to be me. I'm going to call it out. Mate. No offense, Peter. The sun may set on the British Empire these days, but the British Empire is always watching you, Marcus. <laughs> I'm Canadian, I know. <laughs> Don't have their people on our money. Well, you're really in trouble, and the king is going to come after you. Don't watch it. <laughs> All right, James. Closing thoughts and and coming attractions. Yes. So, just about this book. This has been a great book as way to get across his main point, which is what are the causes and what are the consequences of this war, this grand scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. It starts way back, right? He's going back to the emperors and empresses of Russia and going all the way forward to now. The history goes along, which is a continuous path that that keeps returning them to this tyrannical kind of rule. It really struck me that we are seeing back in history just by looking at Russia and the way they do things now. I would say this is this has got to be one of, no, it probably is, maybe World War II is worse, but this is horrible for Ukraine. The number of hospitals, the number of healthcare centers, just all of the civilian targets that they've hit, all, it, the, the destruction is horrible. The toll it's taking on the people of Ukraine is horrible. It just reminds me that a couple hundred years ago, somebody wrote a poem, The Caucasus, that would be Taras uh, Shevchenko. If you haven't read it, at some point we're going to do a reading of it. It's really just, it's stuck. It's explained so much about Russia. It tells us that Russia really hasn't changed much at all. This is a, a disaster for the modern world. I think of it, the problem with Russia is the KGBism, this drive to power without any kind of sound motive, like looking after the good of the people. I don't know how you felt about it, but it really, for a purposed book, and his purpose was to explain this war and what Russia was doing to an audience that should hear it in the middle of the war. Robin, to you. I can't object to anything you just said. I had um, a couple of other things that I that really jumped at me. This one is, and they're, they're related. One is the strength of contemporary Ukrainian civil society and the growth that Ukrainians have made at, in this society starting 
centuries ago, but most recently in the Granite Revolution, which came before independence, the Orange Revolution, which came in response to a, a stolen election that they forced to turn back, and then the Revolution of Dignity, which which threw out the stooge of Putin and again demonstrated Ukrainian commitment to democracy. They didn't go home this time. The Orange Revolution people went home afterwards and it things dialed backwards. The Revolution of Dignity, nobody went home. I think we're seeing this is really, it's a horrible, the cost of this is that, that Ukraine is paying is just Un unbelievable in some ways, but this is, as you're saying, this is their revolutionary war and they will come out of it strong and independent and uh, what for what they've been fighting for hundreds of years. That was my main take out of the book. I want one silly little thing. I was so pleased to see that Sergei Plochy still uses the Oxford comma. Oxford right. comma is king, Robin. I should have guessed you'd say that. Uh, James, I don't know how you feel about the Oxford comma, but we can just go right, we'll blow right past that and tell people what's coming up. Certainly. Um, we'll be looking at the road to unfreedom. It's only six chapters, but the concepts are very appropriate for, especially for the information war that we're all in. And also the understanding of human psychology around when we give up, how we give up, what it is that is attractive about a tyrant and what it is that can help us uh, defend from that. It's very topical for us and it's the kind of book that we need to uh, look to. Uh, this book has been useful for us to understand the history and what really happened. And that's great to look back, but looking forward, what will we do to resist tyranny in the future? That is part of Timothy Snyder's real gift is he, he certainly understands that and writes to it and on tyranny was brilliant. I'm sure this book is going to be just as I did peek a little bit through it and uh, read a few pages. It's looking pretty good to me. I'm excited to be reading this next. I think, as you say, James, and it's, I think for those of you who enjoyed On Tyranny, I think a lot of people really enjoyed that. In some ways, The Road to Unfreedom is more of the same. It's more developed and it's, it's a slightly different focus, but it's many of the same issues. I expect next week we will start in on it. I, we will certainly go through the prologue and we'll get into the first chapter. I can't imagine we'll get any farther than that because this is not a book to be raced through. Anyway, get your books and feel free to come if you haven't read as, as Alan says, and hopefully Alan will be back with us pretty soon. It is, there's, this is not a graduate seminar. There will not be an exam. If you haven't read it, that's fine. We do try, as I think people have seen with this book that we just finished, The Russo-Ukrainian War by Sergei Plohi, that we tried to give you what you needed from the book if you hadn't read it so that we could all discuss it together. With that, James... I'm going to give us, I think, was it Primus and then Marcus? And then we're going we're gonna to hand over to our very thoughtful next group of co-hosts who allowed us to go over a little bit. I don't want to infringe on their generosity more than we have to, though. So let's try to two quick comments, and then we're going to hand over. And, and before that, I am going to step down while you guys are talking. Goodbye. Thank you very much for um, joining us in comments and all the listeners here. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. James, my comment was for you. I wanted to tell you that I'm excited for you to read Ukrainian Gilgamesh. God, Marcus. Bye, James. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Primus.
Yeah, I just wanted to say that I, I'm ride or die when it comes to the Oxford comma. I don't want to live in a world where people don't use it. I love this man. I can't believe we have so many retrograde people in this place. I thought I was the only one. Good for all of us here. I think I'm going to go out and buy that Oxford comma t-shirt. You know who you're dealing with. If they, It's like with my NYU football t-shirt. I could always tell who know what the story was by people who laughed at it. NYU, of course, is famously not sports related. There is no NYU football tape. But anyway, so as we wait here. Yeah, I love the Oxford comma. Yeah, I actually was surprised because usually that doesn't. This is Norton apparently lets their authors dictate their punctuation. A lot of publishing houses wouldn't let that through. Either, either, either they're more liberal or he insisted. Either way, God bless him. Oh, Prince, I love your little avatar. I just love it. welcome up, Prince. Good evening. How are you? Good evening. Reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Love at First Bite. Do you remember that movie? Good Lord, yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm blanking out on the actor's name, though. He was such a second-rate actor that he was a genius in that movie. George Hamilton. The movie George Hamilton was born to to make. Anyway, if the, Marcus, you know the movie? I know of it, but I've never seen it. It's it's on YouTube. It's not in not great fidelity, but it's hysterical. It's a, a incredibly wacky send-up of all the Dracula movies. Anyway, but with that, Prince, you didn't come here to hear about Dracula movies. Thank you for your long suffering and letting us go over tonight. I really appreciated it. Are you kidding? It's not a problem. I have no problem with this. No, it's all good. I'm I'm rather contemplative tonight, and so we'll see where we end up going. That's how life goes. That's, yeah, we, uh, there's, a, there's some news that sort of frustrated me, and that, that happens on a regular basis with this war, with this full-scale invasion of the illegal type. Yes, that is true. That's one of the things that, why we all have to work at keeping our spirits up, because I went through a couple of days of really not feeling so great about things, but. We're back here, we're, we're together, and we are get, getting planning our Crimea beach party. And isn't it nice? Uh, somebody was saying Poseidon must be on Ukraine's side. They cleaned all that crap off the beaches in Ukraine, so they're nice and clean and ready for the party again. But with that note, I think I'm going to say goodnight and let Nafo Dave come up here and settle himself in the seat. Thank you, everybody. See you all next week with the Road to Freedom. Slava Ukraini. Robin, also, don't forget, I, I was promised the Ukrainian Gilgamesh. I'll remind them. <laughs>